Okay. Boker Tov, everybody. Um, hopefully we hear better news this week and that uh, all those who need uh, Hashem's protection should receive it. Um, <clears throat> okay, so on uh, on Shabbos, um, I attempted to construct a, uh, a perspective on a very um, difficult moral conundrum and that was to try and understand the nature of whether there were uh, any innocence in Sodom. When we talk about uh, Pashat Vayera, we um, have much, uh, many stories that take up, uh, that give us thought. And um, normally the Akeda of Yitzchak uh, takes the center stage. Um, but the story of Sodom and the destruction of Sodom is also very much uh, a, a major challenge from a philosophical, moral perspective as to understand the nature of um, how Hashem determines that a certain place should be completely wiped out. As we know, the story uh, the story of Sodom. Sodom was completely destroyed. And um, we can ask the question as looking to understand Hashem's uh, justice, um, were there no innocence in Sodom? And we uh, we see that Hashem enters into dialogue with Avram Avinu, um, and the end of the whole story is that they couldn't even find a uh, a minion of innocence in Sodom, and therefore the whole entire place was sentenced to be destroyed. Now, our question, my question was on Shabbos was, um, when we say there were no righteous people in Sodom, we're assuming that. A righteous person is somebody who is already a mature thinker, an abstract thinker who can be accused of being not righteous, evil or or righteous. And um, and therefore, when we're talking about the age of somebody who can be defined as such a person, we normally assume that um, from at least a uh, philosophical halachic point of view, the relationship with Hashem Jewish sources teach us that the age of 20 is when a person is held accountable fully for their for their opinions because they've had time to mature and they've had time to potentially learn, discover, uh, compare and contrast, etc. So Hashem doesn't really hold somebody uh, to the full level of blame or reward un unless they are past the age of 20. When it comes to judging people's actions down here on earth. So there the Torah gives us um, Hashem's instruction with regard to setting up a court of law, and the court of law is able to hold people already accountable by the time they reach the age of being a major, which would be um, the age of 12 for a girl and 13 uh, for a boy. Uh, at that time, it's assumed that your intellect has, has grown and matured to a, to a level where you can be held accountable for what for what you for what you do. Uh, less than that, younger than that, you're already uh, you're already in this kind of category of uh, being a katana or a katana, uh, a minor, and your your level of responsibility is is mitigated. Now I'm, I pointed out that this whole question as to as to when a person intellectually matures. Um, and 12 or 13 would be the halachic, um, the halachic start of such uh, accountability. This idea is actually a chidush. I mean, it's a novel concept. It's a, it's a novel idea within the world of halacha. And one could argue um, and, and state as follows. What happens if you have people that are younger than 12 or 13 and they seem to be fully intellectually capable of making right or wrong decisions. So you have, okay, the average person might not be until that point, but you have a number, you know, you have quite a significant minority of people who would already be quite uh, quite mature at that level. You know, we all know certain people who have a certain kind of street smartness where these Hevra uh, are already running businesses you know, and uh, wheeling and dealing, you know, um, 
even though they're still under bar mitzvah. It's not that common, but it's not impossibly rare. We always marvel at it, you know, that that uh, you've got kids who are already busy uh, undercutting the school tuck shop, you know, and selling on the side. And, uh, and, you know, all of a sudden they're selling all sorts of things and the school's got to deal with these kind of uh, street smart characters who already show a certain business acumen long before they get to bar mitzvah. You know, so we have in our community all these kinds of uh, kinds of scenarios where it's just a it's a marvel, you know. You know, I know we've had through our own Kehila, you know, friends of my kids who uh, who showed this kind of prowess. I mean, you know, at the age of uh, twelve or thirteen, you know, one of my kids' best mates was already having a paying a PA who's uh, doing work for him in Bangladesh while he's busy wheeling and dealing from Sydney. I mean, it's unusual, but it, it exists. So the question remains, therefore, okay, what would a court of law decide on somebody who shows that they that they have a level of understanding of what they're doing to a point where they can be held accountable? And uh, the novel idea that I want to just quickly share with you is that this, this we call it knowledge, we call it dart. Dart is, uh, you know, we translate it as, as knowledge, as intellect. We ask Hashem every day, but it's a, it's a halachic category as well. It's a certain level of intellectual maturity um, that uh, once it's reached, then it has halachic and legal implications um, to uh, to the level of responsibility one can be held accountable to. And we, and we have a halachic principle that that only matures at the age of 12 or 13 to hold you to hold you accountable. My question was is what happens if you find somebody whose dart is in place and is younger than 12 or 13? What do, what do we do with that? So uh, according to one way of thinking among uh, various halachists, we have no choice but to say, okay, he gets away on a technicality um, if he causes damage or she causes damage, um, if they are younger than 12 or 13. Even though in theory, you could say, look, this person is really savvy, um, but there's a halacha in place. And uh, one of the great halachas, the Rosh, uh, interprets that the the concept of what we call shiurim. Shiurim are all manner of halachic measurements which... Um, which allow you to either fulfill a mitzvah or to be liable for punishment on an Aveira um, if you have either consumed or done something to a certain level where that shiur, that amount, is halachically recorded in the, in, in the Gemara and in the Halacha, which would mean as follows. When we say, what falls under the rubric of shiurim? Well, you know that if you... Want to fulfill a mitzvah of eating something, so you have to eat a kazait. A kazait is a volume of a of an olive, or you have to eat a kabetza, a volume of an egg. Um, to be liable for eating on Yom Kippur, you have to eat a certain amount, you know, which is like a dried date. So there are all these different shiurim of volumes, right? And we always Pesach, we're busy driving ourselves mashuga, how much matzah, how much maror, how much wine, you know, all of this a revit of liquid, a kazite of actual food. All, all of this are, these are called shiurim. You want to go to a mikveh, you have to have a certain amount of water in the actual mitzvah. In the mikveh, you have to have 40 sa'ah. You know, these, these are units of measurements that uh, one needs to um, entertain when looking at the world of mitzvah and what you need to have in order to fulfill a mitzvah. Now, under the rubric of shiurim, the rosh, uh, the Rosh is Mechadesh. The Rosh comes along with a, the Rosh is an acronym for Abainu Asher, one of the famous Ashkenazi halachists. And uh, he suggests that under the rubric of, of Shiurim um, includes this particular Shiur, this, um, this yardstick of measuring intellectual maturity, Katan or Gadol, Ktana or Gadola, Major or Minor, you know, that that falls under this umbrella as well, which um it's a bit it's an interesting chidush this this his his uh his concept which means that where was shiurim where do we get all these shiurim from? Um, our assumption is is that they are 
divinely given by Hashem to Moshe Rabbeinu um, at Sinai, what we call Alochal Moshe Mi Sinai. They, in order to actually be properly compliant within the world of Halakha, you need to have uh, yardsticks, measurements, boundaries, amounts. You need to have shirim in order for the, the justice system or the, the world of mitzvah to actually uh, kick in. And so under the rubric of shirim, which is given to Moshe Rabbeinu at Sinai, falls the definition of who is a minor, who is a major, and by extension, who's liable uh, for any type of activity um, using those shiurim. Now, if we continue with this uh, line of thinking, that all these shiurim were given at Sinai uh, to Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, we, we then, by extension, understand that it's a novel idea. It's, it's not natural. It's, it's pan-natural. It's, it's, it's spiritual. Um, as if to say that there was a law that governed humanity until Sinai, and then from Sinai onwards, um, Akosh Baruch Hu introduced a new system. Uh, and this system, one of the one of the laws that were introduced at Sinai were was this concept of all the various shiurim, all the different amounts, and, uh, and 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 yardstick to measure things. If this is true, it would mean that the shiurim were given halacha lemoshim Sinai specifically to Am Yisrael, specifically to Am Yisrael, which means that the shiurim measuring intellectual maturity uh, around which we can hold you liable and that, that, and that start, the cutoff of innocence to guilty is at 12 or 13, that is a chidush, that is a novel approach to be used by Jews for Jews. The implication of this is that when we look at the world of moral ideas that apply to universal man, specifically not to Am Yisrael, but to universal man, meaning non-Jews who decide to abide by the seven categories of mitzvah, what we call the Sheva Mitzvah, Mitzvot B'nai Noach, if, if, if a, a non-Jewish person, you know, is taken to court and sued over fraud or damage, whatever it may be, um, under the rubric of thou shalt not steal, which applies to the non-Jewish world as well, or committing atrocities of incest or murder, which are part of the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach, uh, including avoid Zorah and blasphemy and, and uh, you know, remaining silent where you have to adjudicate and set up a court of law and you can't just, you can't just wipe you know, crime underneath the carpet and ignore it. All of these are part of the, the seven mitzvot b'nai noach, which humanity needs in order to survive. But if the shiurim are specifically to be applied to the Jewish world, then those shiurim are, are preceded by a, an original set of shiurim. And Moshe Rabbeinu got a new set of shiurim to be applied to the Jewish world. If this interpretation is accurate, then universal man will be, will be judged, in a sense, much more strictly. Um, and it won't be intellectual dart only for only can hold you liable at 12 or 13 like a jew if we will we will judge you individually we will we will judge you without we, each person will be held accountable based on their maturity and if they know what they're doing even at the age of 10 or 8 or you know and they know that and we are able to assess that they can be held responsible for their for their actions then they will be liable at that age that they are, that they are responsible. So it's kind of an interesting concept here that that you know shiurim will not apply on the way we apply them to the Jewish world as we will apply them to the non-Jewish world from a Jewish perspective. You know this is a very interesting uh, chidush, 
and it, and it, and I was looking to, you know, I was reflecting on it when I'm trying to understand, you know, there's a non-Jewish world out there that are held accountable to these Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach, you know, and damages included under the rubric of stealing and murder included um, as 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 the primal um character trait that human beings you know have to bar darkness they want to destroy the world and now you want to ask okay so if there are innocents um what age would you say that those innocents can be deemed innocent and my point just to kick off with was this khidush that even though you might quickly say you know bat and bar mitzvah you know I would argue it's not so simple over here. We're talking about universal man, where Baron Bat Mitzvah is uh, is a chirush you know, that doesn't apply to universal man. We have to work out if, and therefore a person can be held accountable for for damage, destruction, murder, even if if, if they know what they're doing at a much younger age. And therefore, your level of of holding people halachically innocent. You know, is a different calculation over here when we're looking to try and work out how many innocents were they in Saddam? At what age are they considered innocent? It's an individual one. So that's, you know, that was part A of the discussion, just to bring this and highlight this point. And I made mention of a uh, of a of a case which we were all familiar with. Um, there were those two youngsters in in, in England who who uh who at I think at the age of 10 and 8 took this little kid and they tortured him to death, you know what I mean? Um, and and the whole world was up in arms about this, and and there was a whole story about these about these kids, you know, when could you hold them liable? They were minors at the time. And um and, you know, anyway, I think you remember that story. I think the uh, I actually think the kid's name was was Jamie or something. Um Anyway, it, it was it was a real story, right? And um, and the question really was at the time. I think we all got the emails whether it was uh, objectively MS or not. I don't know, but there was this concept that you know they were coming to Australia as as uh, grown people now, as 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 legal adults, and you know we wanted to stop them emigrating over here, you know, because of their past behaviour. And this is the question, you know. If they knew what they were doing, even though they were minors, halachically, we, uh, from a Jewish point of view, we uh, we would still hold them liable. We would say, well, maybe the ten-year-old Tucker knew what he was doing, you know. Maybe the eight-year-old didn't, or whatever it was. But you know, we we would look at it that way. And the same thing is true now. How this is a question you want to talk about innocence? Well, the society that we're looking at uh, when we talk about Gaza and this uh, Hamas Arab culture, which is happy to indoctrinate their kids from the youngest of ages while they're still in kindergarten, to to the point where at the age of, I don't know, uh, eight years old, you might even argue six years old, that that kid would be indoctrinated with ideology against Am Israel to the point that they would have no qualms pulling the trigger. Okay, and then you would argue with me. You know, what does indoctrination mean within the world of legal liabilities? You know, but they're dangerous at that point in time already. Um, and I, I'm not paskining over here. I, you know, I'm just saying that we should be aware that when we're talking about, you know, the world shouting at us, that we have to, we have to defend, you know, we have to protect the innocence. There's a real big question as to how old that is and get a long, lot younger than you think. And, uh, you know, if somebody young will literally have the, the you know, the the gross chutzpah to be able to perpetrate such crimes because of what you've done to them, well, well done, Hamas. You've taken uh, a whole entire society and you've taught them to be murderers at the age of six. And uh, in in Hashem's world, from our lucky point of view, universal man is is, is liable when a certain level of uh, of intellectual capability has, has reached, and you've you might have condemned all of your youngsters, a lot younger than twelve or thirteen, you know, to non innocence, and therefore, from our lucky point of view, you know, they uh, they would be held held liable. 
So this was, uh, you know, this was uh, a point that, that needed to be, to be brought out. I mean, we're trying to understand, you know, how Hashem works, what his value system is, and can we apply principles from what Hashem did in a place like Sodom, where he held the whole entire town, country, uh, you know, liable and destroyed the whole entire place. Now, I didn't mention this on Shabbos, but there is a there is an opinion based on uh, on on insights from Chazal that um, there's a there are psukim in the Torah that talk about a city which um, which becomes liable to this, for destruction when that city is committed to idol worship and that entire culture in that city in that town in that country is uh completely completely committed to idol worship and there's a halachic category called irani dachat it's a it's a city that's been uh, that's committed to to take a path completely the antithesis of what hashem has has commanded they've been uh, they've been swayed and educated against it by various individuals but the whole entire town has absorbed that message and is prepared to support that message. That Irani Dachat, if uh, pure halakha was governing such a city, it would lose its right to exist and could be destroyed completely. And again, I didn't bring it up, but I'm I'm just saying it now because we've got a bit more time to discuss it. You know, Irani Dachat, when you have an entire society that 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 you know, we don't know if we can use the word entire, but we could, we'll argue the point, you know, what's happened over there. Are there any people who, even if they don't support what Hamas did and they wouldn't have done it themselves, but they hold that Israel should be destroyed. You know, these are all issues. Bottom line is what kind of a city is, is Gaza? Saddam, according to this interpretation, was an Irani Dachat and lost its right to exist. In other words, from Akush Baruch's point of view, looking at Saddam, there were people, yes, younger than 20. There were people younger than 12 and 13. It didn't really matter. Those shurim didn't apply. And the whole place was deemed lacking any innocence. And we're not even talking about, I mean, you know, when we say Tzadik, Rasha, and Armavinu and Hashem are arguing, our assumption is they're arguing over people who are mature. But, you know, Mamesh, are they arguing on, on what level are they arguing? Is it the level of halachic dat applied to universal man? That's much younger than, than you think. But the question still remains, what about children that are have no dat? They're three years old, anywhere from, from infant you know, to toddler. This becomes an issue. Hashem somehow did not did not take that into account when when looking at when looking at Saddam. And the question is. How do we un can we understand that? Can, can we understand that? So there is a there is a way to to approach this. Again, I'll just share with you something a little uh, different, uh, not different, but a, a little extra. I didn't mention this on Shabbos, but I'll mention it to you. Uh, and that is as follows: uh, there's a there's a fascinating um, insight uh, that um, is is uh, is found in an essay penned by. Uh, Shiur given by Rabbi called called Dodido Fake, which is a famous famous Shiur in the world of of uh, of 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 YU, religious Zionism, you know. Um, and Rabbi Shiur was a seminal piece of Torah, which um, which gave halachic, hashkafic, uh, halachic and philosophical support to uh, to the miracle of the establishment of the state of Israel. Um, it's a fascinating essay. Anyway, when I was in Yeshiva, uh, I actually, uh, you know, I, I went through the, the essay with a fine tooth comb. I actually was ex I was actually introduced to the essay when I was still in high school. I had a um, I had a very gifted Hebrew teacher, and I was the only kid in my class who was doing Hebrew, and um, so I had this uh, I had this teacher, who um, his name was Rivka Oren, um, who Essentially, I had like private lessons in Hebrew for like, you know, standard eight, nine, and ten. Meaning, like, I had, I had three years of one-on-one. -on -one. That's tough. 
for a kid, you know, like it's one-on-one, man. You know, it's really hard to bunk in that situation. But the point is that she was looking to really get my level of Hebrew uh, significant before I, before I left school. Anyway, when I was in matric, so she made me write these uh, exams that were coming out of Israel. And um, one of the one of the essays that was the, a prescribed essay, which they were doing in certain high schools in Israel, was this essay. Anyway, so that's how I got introduced to this essay. It was like, it, it, was, it was seriously tough on the Hebrew. Man, it was really, really hard Hebrew. And the beginning of it, when you start actually reading it, is much harder than than the middle and the end in terms of the Hebrew language. But nevertheless, that's where I was exposed to it. Anyway, in the actual essay, um, Rav Soloveitchik relates a uh, a novel idea from his grandfather, Rav Chaim, and his father, Rav Moshe Soloveitchik. They discussed this issue, and they each had an application of this chidush uh, that I'm going to share with you now. And this is how, this is the discussion. Uh, the discussion centers around the fact that there are two mitzvot in the Torah which obligate the people of Israel upon entry into the land of Israel to the, to offer the people living there. There are, depends how you look at the whole land of Israel. You know, Israel, let's call it minor Israel or major Israel, depending on how big the map of Israel is. But let's say there are um, there are 31 Canaanite kings inside Israel. When you look at it from that point of view, when you look at it from the Torah's point of view, there's kind of base cultures um, where, you know, the Canaani, the Canaanites are one, even though there were 31 kings, but they considered one culture. And if you're looking at it that way, there are either seven cultures on one side of the, you know, of the Jordan River and three on the other. There were, you know, there were 10 cultures in Israel. And you hear about them in, in Torah when we talk about the Chiti, the Chittites and the Yevusi and the Girgashi and, you know, all, all of those cultures, depending on how we looking to group them, we have these amount of cultures. Now, let's just call them the, the way that, uh, that, that, we, that we refer to them within the world of Halakha. We, we talk to them as the, the seven uh, nations, cultures, that inhabit uh, the land of Israel, the Shivata Amamim. There's a mitzvah to offer them the following deal. We send them a message. Hashem has uh, ordained that the people of Israel are to take back the land of Israel and purify it. And purify it means that everybody living there is obligated to ascribe to the principles of monotheism. And if you are willing to ascribe to the principles of monotheism, you can stay. And if you uh, are adamant that you're not giving up your way of life, then you either have to leave or you have to be prepared for a war. And that's the that's the approach. And um, And we have this mitzvah, to go to war to eradicate idol worship. And the assumption is, from at least a logical point of view, that idol worship represents an ideology which is so dangerous that if it let to if it let live, especially in the land of Israel, it will influence and destroy the fabric of society in Eretz Israel. And if you approach it from that point of view, this is an understanding of how dangerous it is. It's a kind of ideology which you would say, you know, destructive at the core. And you would possibly compare it to uh, cultures that have come from an, ideal, an, an idolatry background where either the, the dictator is happy to have idols worshipped because then his idol will be the excuse for the way he wants to take control over the entire society and the idol will justify his mode of behavior. And giving a human being complete power, it corrupts like no other. And eventually you will justify uh, murder, pillage, uh, rape, etc., all under the rubric of how you interpret your own idol. So when you when you take God out of an equation of human society and no one is held accountable to a higher source, but rather man sets himself up to be the arbiter of what is moral and immoral, 
you what you do by that exercise, which we call idol worship, um, man becomes the arbiter of good and bad, and uh, and it's just a matter of time until you will generate a Hamas-type ideology and others that are as destructive. And so that's the understanding behind the concept of, uh, you know, of destroying, uprooting, you know, idol worship. And this is how one of the ways to understand, possibly one of the ways to understand what Hashem was asking us with this mitzvah, you know, to offer to offer them this, this level of uh, engagement. Now, um, when we when we contemplate this mitzvah, we need to com we compare it to another mitzvah, which exists uh, in close proximity, by extension of this of this mitzvah. So mitzvah A, we just let's just work with the Rambam's text because when I say close proximity in my head, I'm just I'm just seeing how the the halachot are actually recorded in the Rambam. In Yochot Mulachim, the Rambam records these uh, principles. So halacha A is to destroy the seven nations if they don't want to comply or they don't want to leave. The second halacha is the, the mitzvah to destroy Amalek. Now, when we uh, when we talk about this, um, these are two separate mitzvahs, but they could possibly be the same mitzvah. You know, is Amalek different from the seven nations and why is it considered separate? So here is the discussion. I actually... Um, I said this over Shabbos afternoon when we were going through our story again uh, in the Tanakh of uh, of the war against Sisra. But nevertheless, the, the question about Amalek, right? So here, here's the interesting idea. Um, the seven nations, the Rambam tells you that mitzvah to destroy the seven nations if they don't leave or don't adopt monotheistic principles that mitzvah no longer is applicable in our day and age. And the reason why it's no longer applicable is because toward, uh, let's call it a, a century and a, a bit before the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, um, the people of, of Israel, the 10 tribes in the Northern Kingdom were exiled, were exiled by a, chief of staff um, from Assyria called Sanchairev. And Sanchairev didn't just take his um, you know his his uh, his wrath out on the on the Jewish people. He he was a world conqueror. He wanted to dominate world civilization. And he was um, he he had he had his whole the conquest of his conquest was almost absolute. And what he did was he had a method of conquering places. He would he would exchange population groups. He would expel people, like swathes of people. You know, millions of people would be uprooted <clears throat> from their home-grown town or country and planted in somewhere else. The strategy behind it seems to be that if you know the 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 potential for insurrection against the the conquering nation is significantly lessened when you don't know the terrain. And so he was swapping population groups and mixing up population groups all over the world. And, um, and uh, you know, the way the Gomorrah talks about, it, talks about it is that he was Bill Bell at Ha'umot. He mixed up, he made a cholent out of all the cultures in the world to a point where after a couple of generations, you couldn't identify a genuine culture anymore. Everybody was intermarried um, and 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 uh, and reproduced generations of different people such that nobody was pedigree anymore. You know, mongrels ruled the world because every every culture you couldn't identify where you came from. You know, and this is like Lahavdil, one of the issues with you know racist theory. You had all these. You had people throughout uh, the the you know history claiming that they were a pedigree of sorts, you know, and that's what the the Nazis, the Germans, you know, an Aryan race. But if you just peeled away a little bit of the surface, you know, all of a sudden you found, you know, he wasn't such a pure Aryan. He was a little bit of this and a little bit of that, you know, and then that's how it was, right? It's like 
you know, even even when we um when we started to study at school, you know, South African history, and we trying to, you know, there were certain people there who were talking about, you know, the pure Afrikaner. You know, well, you dug a little bit deeper. He's a pure Afrikaner. And everybody was like, you know, there was, you know, intermarried with slaves and gefufled with, yeah, gefufled with, yeah. You know, we, we talk about the culture, you know, we can't identify who the parents are. We can't, we can't identify, you know, we, we, it's a, it's a fraudulent, man. This place is a mess. We, I'm Israel, pride ourselves on saying, you know, those of us who, Baruch Hashem, have been privileged to keep our lineage intact, we, we, we know, we, we know exactly who we were. We trace ourselves all the way back to Avram Avinu kind of thing. This is where we, you know, there is no corruption within the genealogy. Anyway, this is exactly what the Gemara says about all the seven nations inhabited the land of Israel. They lost their definitive, um, you know, biological, genealogical uh, origins. And therefore, you can't identify, uh, uh, you know, a Mitzri, a Yevusi, a Girgashi, a Chiti, a Chivi, you know. You can't identify them. You know, they can give you a passport that can say Mitzri, you know, Egyptian. Okay, so you're an Egyptian as far as your passport's concerned. But as far as the is concerned, we don't even know where you came from, who you are anymore. There's kind of like, you know, such an intermingling of cultures and races because of Sanjayrev's policy that we no longer can... You only have a right to destroy the seven nations. You don't have a right to destroy a mitzvah to destroy pe people who aren't of the seven nations. And since we can't detect who they are, they, they you know, the, the mitzvah... The mitzvah no longer exists. However, the Rambam then quotes this next halacha that Amalek needs to be destroyed. And he doesn't apply this principle to Amalek. And the question is, why not? This is what uh, Rebchaim Soloveitchik first dealt with. <clears throat> why is it that as far as the rest of the cultures of the world the statement is kvar ibad zichram. Their their memory has been altered to such a point they can't the the ability to trace them is, is they've lost their original um, you know genealogy. Whereas Amalek doesn't because the Rambam has in a separate halacha that you have to still have a mitzvah that's a, that's applicable today to wipe out Amalek. So what happened there? And this brings us to a to the next point of the chiddush and that is that. It must be that Amalek, or suggestion is that Amalek is not necessarily a race. If it was just a race, then you're right. You know, Amalek would also, you can't, God taps on the shoulder and says, hello, I'm an Amaleki. You don't have a way to identify them. But if Amalek is not just a race, but it's an ideology, ah, if it's an ideology, well, once you can identify an Amaleki ideology, then you have a mitzvah to destroy it. Why? Because an Amaleki ideology you know, has as its core principle to destroy Jews just because they're Jews. And any culture that adopts such an ideology can be called an Amalek of sorts. And this was, of course, Rastrovacic's uh, reflection on on uh, on the Nazis in their time. They were Amalek, incarnate. And therefore, if you, you know, if you, the sad reality is that we weren't able to do anything about it. But the mitzvah was still there. If you were able to actually take somebody out, that was a mitzvah to destroy Amalek. So now the question is, and this is what I, this is the question now, can you apply this ideology, you know, to to people today? And this is a very, and uh, this is a difficult question, whether this chidush, besides being a philosophical and intellectual one, can it be a lachik one? Can it be applied? You know, do we hold that Hamas or Amalek? And if they are, you treat them as Amalek. You have to wipe them out. You know, this is the this is the real question, right? Anyway, I just mentioned in the in in the shear that that uh, we had a, an opportunity. A number of us uh, older guys in the yeshiva, older chutznikim, we had an opportunity to to have sessions with uh, uh, the founding the late founding Rosh Yeshiva of Amital, and we discussed this chidush with him, and he was very uncomfortable with it. He disagreed with Rasulovetic. He didn't think that the interpretation, uh, in other words, the application of it was actually was actually relevant. Meaning, he said, "Look, 
you're coming along to say that somebody, a human being, can look at another human being and say, you're Amalek. And therefore, I can take you out no matter what, no matter where, no matter when, right? Uh, he was saying that only Hashem can decide such a thing. Uh, and therefore, he says, the mitzvah that applied to wipe out the seven nations in its time and dealing with the philosophical conundrum of innocence and ignoring that is only because Akash Baruch uh, looked at the society and, and judged it to be worthy of destruction. But no human being can make such, such a uh, call on their own. And therefore, you have to assume that there are a certain amount of innocence and you have to deal with it. And this is now, of course, the counter to this whole argument. In other words, when Hashem tells Am Yisrael to destroy the seven nations upon entry into the land of Israel under Yoshua and under the leadership of the Shoftim, there Akosh Baruch is giving each of these Shoftim a prophetic command um, to do to, to, that it's time and place to do this mitzvah now. Because Hashem, who's the only being that can do it, has judged every single entity that's living in that particular city, you know, to be either a a, hard, a criminal or harboring criminal uh, principles that will eventually mature and become real. That kid who's, who's right now, you know, b beneath the age that a human being can consider them uh, evil, that kid will become evil. And only Akash Baruch can know that. And prophecy is an expression of God. So you have to have a prophet telling you such a thing. That was Rav Amital's, uh, you know, uncomfortability with this particular chiddush. Now, we didn't have an opportunity to, you know, to ask of Soloveitchik what he thought about it and how he approached it. But, you know, but bottom line is this was the, this was the tension that existed in this particular discussion. So, you know, if you, if a person holds that, that they're Amalek, you know, you're saying something which, which has which has ramifications, and you have to now, um, you have to now you have to realize that that this is kind of a uh, an issue. The language, you know, starts starts to matter, and uh, and this can be argued. This can be argued about. So I was bringing, I tried to bring two different, uh, you know, opinions that that in, in my little world, you know, um, created or the opportunity to see these 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 counter these counter opinions. And um, what I what I did was, you know, I have a, I have a, I have a, a relationship with a, a, a tremendous Talmud Chacham in in Israel, whose name is Rabbi Herzl Hefter. Uh, I'm not sure if you, uh, you know, have been able to look him up online, but if you want, I'll send you his article. Anyway, so he sent me an article of his where he made the case that the innocence in Gaza. And uh, he was saying, you know, um, again, I haven't haven't said it, in, haven't seen it in these terms, but it's very similar to what what I what I understand as as Biden and America's uh, principles. Now, you know, there are lots of the majority of Gazans are not guilty, and therefore you have to take into account where we're holding with this. You know, so on the one hand, destroy Hamas; on the other hand, there's a you know, there's a lot of innocence there. And uh, and that is Rabbi Hefter's approach too. You know, language makes a difference. We can't use the word Nazi to describe um, Hamas. Hamas aren't Nazis. Nazis want to destroy us completely and absolutely because we're in Israel. If we weren't in Israel, they'd leave us alone. Uh, sorry, Nazi would destroy us no matter what, and no matter where we are, just for being Jewish. And Hamas only want to destroy the people of Israel, you know, because they are in Israel. I mean, not like we need an excuse to defend ourselves, right? We have to defend ourselves. It's not giving Hamas any kind of um, leeway out of here. It's just trying to, 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 to sharpen our understanding of the terms that we use because there may be implications. And I think this is one of the major arguments that takes place right now, you know, as it did in the world of Saddam. You know, are there innocents in Saddam? Were there innocents or are there innocents in Gaza? Were the innocents in Saddam, and do we have to do we have to reckon with that? Well, not well, Akosh Baruch's case in Saddam, it was treated like an Irani dachat, and he, and Akosh Baruch Hu has the license. In Avamital's words, the only being that has the license to to operate like that, and just as Hashem operated like that in the flood, and that in potential innocents were 
you know, were destroyed there as well. Um, and 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 many great thinkers wrestle with that. So too in the case of Saddam. But but there, the philosophical moral conundrum for us is mitigated completely because we believe in Akosh Baruch as Atsur Tamim Polo Kichodachav Mishpat. All of his his uh, you know his actions are are just. Meaning, like he has the you know the the infinite ability to to know what's in the heart and what's in the future of every single being that's there, and therefore justice will 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 often ignore uh, either claim there are no innocents there and therefore you can in destroy or you have to have another philosophical or moral theory as to how you ignore the innocence you know to protect the greater good you know and this is you know how many innocents does it take not to actually you know to to justify us not destroying the place taking innocence into account putting our soldiers in danger because of this dealing with the hostages that are there you know that's that's, that's a serious serious question Anyway, so as I say, uh, you know, my 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 friend has a very uh, we would call it a left wing approach. You know, dare we use that? You know, but uh, you know, as I say, I I have a very difficult time, you know, um, you know, dealing with it. It's a real issue. But he didn't want to use the word Nazi because he felt there was a difference between how Nazis behaved and how Hamas behaved, as barbaric as Hamas was. There can be Evil, 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 but not Amalek. And he was willing to make that distinction. And number two, you know, he um, he was he was cautioning against using the word Holocaust uh, as well, because Holocaust is so uh, let's call it, you know, it was made in the crucible of the worst evil possible, and 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 as bad as what happened with with Hamas was, it's not a Holocaust. You know, part of the fact that we have whom to call to rescue us, even though there'll be casualties in the Holocaust, there was nobody. So these were all his approaches, and he was cautioning people as as uh, as much as he understood everybody's absolute, um, you know, uh, anger against what Hamas did and and a call for revenge, etc. He was cautioning that it can go too far. We have to, you know. Anyway, you know. I then, I then in Shul, I mentioned um, a counterpoint to this, you know, and this is an article that I would really like you to read. Um, I will, please God, forward it to you. Anyway, uh, there's an article written by Michael Oren, you know, the famous historian, academic, um, you know, one of his great fans, read, uh, you know, all the books that I know that he's written, I think. Um, anyway, so he he is a, to me, a very... Because he's not from, and because he um, served as Bibi's ambassador to America under Obama, and he wasn't a Bibi supporter. Um, so I find his stuff, even if I disagree, because I come from a much more right-wing uh, perspective, but I find him very, very balanced. You know, some people would say he's ridiculously right-wing, but I find him balanced. He wasn't a ridiculous right-wing, you come and speak to me. But, but, but um, this is, you know... This is, anyway, this is what he had to say. Now, he wrote an article called Why the Body Cams. You know, wh wh why, why, do, uh, why did Hamas wear these cameras, you know, on their person, you know, while perpetrating this absolute massacre? You know, this is, this is what he asks. It's one question that he says that keeps haunting him. You know, why the, the body cams? Right, so the Hamas terrorists they break through the border and they literally, you know, rape, burn, mutilate, massacre, you know, one and a half thousand civilians. Right? And they didn't just come armed with guns and grenades, they came with cameras to film the actions. Um, this is how we know what happened. The world only knows really what happened because of these, you know, these 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 cameras. You know, normally Israel doesn't uh, has a principle. It's like a long-standing policy of never publishing the photos, you know, of the dead or the injured. You know, but the need to remind the world of Hamas's crimes resulted in the release, you know, of all of these um, body cam scenes. You know, and 
you know from 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 the news that, that the set select group of foreign correspondents, you know, were shown these videos, um, and they show, you know, that the terrorists were methodically shooting children under a table, chopping off the head of a Thai worker, you know, and then raiding the the, the fridge right after butchering its owners. You know, um, it, it always reminds me of the of the statement in the in the in the Megillah in the Megillah Esther, right? I always think of this scene, you know, that after signing, after Haman and Achashverosh seal the fate of the Jewish people and genocide is brought into their policy, their adopted policy, after after signing the death of an entire culture. So the Megillah says, you know, they had a lachaim. You know, we read it like Eicha. In other words, can you see what they did? Exactly what they did. Aman is Amalek. That's what you do. You sit down and you have a lachaim once you've actually gone through and 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 destroyed people. You know, this is exactly what uh, what this what, what this shows us. Okay, this is. So you have to ask yourself, what motivated these murderers to record their atrocities? And this is what Michael Oren asks. Who was the intended audience? You know? And so this is what he writes about and, you know, resonated with me a lot. You know? And that is, you know, he, 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 um, he, uh, he, he now brings our focus to, you know, to, 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 to see, to understand, you know, where America's coming into this. What does Joe Biden think? So he hears Joe Biden, you know, speak twice. He, you know, he, he dates it to October 18, October 25, if you want to look for the, you know, for the the actual speech of, of President Biden. And, you know, you see Joe Biden calling on Israel to Israel to make every effort to avoid causing civilian casualties in Gaza. Now, okay, there's nothing new about his request. You know, they, him and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken make it daily. But then, but then this is this is what it's based on. Biden makes an extraordinary assertion, and he states the vast majority of Palestinians are not Hamas. This is what he claimed, right? Now you hear this, and you know you ask yourself now, so why the body camps? You know who were the videos meant for? If not for that same vast majority of Palestinians. Now, the you know Biden has not hasn't produced any evidence to back up his claim, and it, but if you ask many of the Israelis, I would even uh, uh, you know I would even probably state that the majority of Israelis might argue with you, you know, because at the end of the day, there were many Gazan civilians who entered Israel. You know, this is what the evidence points to. This is uh, you know Naftali Bennett's. Um, you know, a uh, statement to Pierce Morgan, you know, uh, as quoted here by, uh, by Michael Oren, you know, and he, you know, he added, you know, and Naftali Bennett added that they, they pointed out which girls to capture and which girls to rape and murder. So the notion that Hamas is totally divorced from the massive public support of Gazans is untrue. And this is what Michael Oren, you know, wants to bring to our attention. You know, and this is exactly what you see. The sentiment, he says that uh, that sentiment was repeated in conversations that he's held since the beginning of the war at every shiver house he's been to, you know, and the funerals and visits to the families of the hostages, you know, which all Israelis are not only calling for vengeance against Hamas, but against all the Palestinians of Gaza. You've got to eliminate them all, you know. Now, you know, this is what the grieving families are saying, down to the last child. You know, this is, this is, and it, you know, he quotes, a, he quotes an interview from Israeli TV where a highly decorated RDF um, intelligence veteran by the name of Eliyahu Yossian, he's an immigrant from Iran, and he urged Israelis to regard every Gazan as a Hamas terrorist. We have to respond, he says, with the utmost cruelty. Every first grader in Gaza learns to use, you know, an M16 and a Kalashnikov. 
You know, we must not enter Gaza to settle accounts, but to decimate them, to bring them to their knees until they pray to God, what have we done? This is exactly what, uh, this is what Oren writes here, you know? And he says, to his, uh, to his surprise, you know, he writes that no one in the Israeli government or military has taken issue with President Biden's claim. And everybody's trying, you know, on the contrary, officials continue to distinguish between combatants and civilians in Gaza, you know, and urging the latter to evacuate the northern battle zone for the relatively safety of the south. You know, um, and this is exactly the machlokas, the argument, you know, between the two points of view. And, um, you know, you have to realize this is a major moral argument. And the question, of course, is what's the truth, and what do we, and how do we, how do we operate? How do we, how do we work with this? You know, we know it's the population that voted Hamas into power in two thousand and six, and it cheered its violent takeover Gaza. You know, uh, then as well, are they innocent or complicit in its crimes? The way we, the the the, the way we determine this question will impact, you know, the conduct of of how we wage this particular war and future prospects for peace. Of course, we have to look over our shoulder to, you know, you know to understand our position in the in, in world opinion and, and America, but all of that is a, what cocks us, you know? This is a, we have to know who the enemy is. And this is part of the problem, right? The problem is, is that when you leave Gaza and you go and you, um, you know, you start looking at what's happening in Yura and Shomron, and these Palestinians that that perpetrate attacks across the borders into the Yishuvim, are they not like uh, Hamas? Are they no? They like Hamas. We should do the same thing there. You know, this is the this is the story, right? Anyway, bottom line is he quotes uh, he quotes another another opinion. He quotes, he quotes information from a, uh, a you know he said that 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 the Israeli government had tossed him Michael Oren with exploring ways to improve the quality of life in Gaza. This was in 2016. Um, you know, and the idea was gives Hamas something to lose. Um, you know, and uh, he took advice from a um from Israel's national security advisor at the time, um, who's the head of the southern region of internal security, the Shabak, was um, you know, his name is Ben Shabbat, Mayor Ben Shabbat. So he quotes that he spoke to him, you know, and, uh, you know, he basically said uh, he was considered at the time as a number one expert on, on Gaza and Hamas. And the first thing that Ben Shabbat told him was discard any notion you have of human decency and civilized behavior. You know, that's it. He says in, in Azar, Iran is willing to fight Israel to the last Palestinian. And Palestinian Authority Abbas, um, Mahmoud Abbas, will fight Hamas to the last Israeli. Hamas uses and loses hundreds of Palestinian children each year digging its tunnels. This is the information that he gave him. In addition to taking a big cut of all the goods entering Gaza, right? Hamas, Hamas limits their flow to keep the population angry and dependent. And he, he, he gave over from the Israeli intelligence community, Hamas blows up the pipes that bring fuel into Gaza and bombs the border crossings through which aid and aid workers pass. You know, this is this is what he told. This is what he told him. This is what he quotes in the in in the article. You know, and he said the biggest chiddush. What he he wasn't expecting this. He says the most astonishing insight that Mayor Ben Shabbat supplied him was the nature of Hamas's relationship with the people. Despite all of the misery that Hamas has inflicted on them, Hamas remained exceedingly popular among the people of Gaza. Unlike the corrupt and you know, collaborationist Palestinian Authority, Hamas championed the armed struggle against Israel and upheld Islamic law. And therefore, despite the fact that they know that they're being smashed by Hamas, the people in Gaza, in any election, Hamas would win by a landslide. You know, this is this is what he told him. This is seven years ago since he received this uh, information, this insight from uh, Mary Ben Shabbat's briefing. You know, and uh, 
this is the this is the issue you know um you have to you have to ask ha have palestinians you know um tired of the costly conflicts with israel you know with with its rising corruption and brutal suppression of 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 of, of critics you know this is this is the issue you know are there people in gaza who tucker hold you know that um that this is true so this is the this is the issue over here that um you know the palestinian survey taken since the outbreak of the war determined that trust in hamas you know has has gone down you know this is the question now and this is what people are saying there are innocents in gaza but the question really is is that uh, you know is that true and does it you know is it going to work you know the even if the even even if the support for hamas does decline does that fully support or substantiate president biden's claim that the vast majority of palestinians are not hamas you know and and look I, you know this is the question that he's asking and he says maybe okay maybe it's because there's only 150,000 Hamas members there against two million people that are, that are there, you know. But the bottom line is that, from his point of view, Palestinians may well be disillusioned with Hamas's governance, but they remain overwhelmingly approving of terror. Uh, and this is exactly the issue, you know. The other surveys that were done by the Washington Institute indicate that three quarters of of Gazans support both the Palestinian. Islamic Jihad and the lion's den. You know, this is uh so the bottom line is is that you've got you've got a, a big issue on your hands over here. And this is probably what um this is probably what 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 most people I would say, you know, especially if you've suffered you've suffered um you know atrocities at the hands of Hamas. And so this is the big issue, you know. Um how do you define who's who 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 are the innocent Palestinians over here? How, how do you define Palestinian terror? So these are the, you know, the, this these are the big questions. And if you really want to defend Israel properly, we have to come to the bottom, get to the bottom of this. Um, you know, so this is the issue. Anyway, the bottom line is that, as I say, we have to realize that uh, only Hashem really knows what's in the heart of the average person. We have. We have yardsticks to measure it, and uh, the question is really a difficult time. Um, you know, so we have to we have to dive in that Akush Baruch Hu, um inserts into the minds of of leaders who have impact on our future there and in our fight there. You know what the that we shouldn't if they are innocents, and and our, and and our, and Hashem's uh, you know decision as is, is that they shouldn't be they shouldn't be hurt they shouldn't be hurt, but what level do we have to apply our level of defense and you know at what point do we have to put our boys on the line or our girls on the line you know uh, to to deal to the, to deal with this because we have to realize that um that the difference uh between what rabbi hefter was trying to say the difference between the nazis and hamas one could argue one could even argue the opposite you know and one, and one could say that um um you know did the did you know the nazis you know did they did that would they have would they have worn body cams you know that, okay they they did what unspeakable stuff to us right that did the what did they do well maybe the times were different you know and therefore maybe one could argue that the nazis did what they did to us you know unforgivable unforgettable no, 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 no pardon there from our point of view. You know, we want to wipe them all out. But but it's interesting to see that the Nazis went went above and beyond to hide the evidence of their genocide. Yet Hamas posted it on Facebook and, and, and everywhere else. You know, so this is this is the this is the difference. One could argue that they're worse than Nazis in that regard. You know, you know, you have hundreds, hundreds of 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 Gazan citizens following Hamas terrorists through the breaks in Israel's fence and carried out atrocities no less horrific. 
And that's why they wore the body cams. They wore they wore the body cams to preserve Hamas, preserve Hamas's handiwork for posterity, to document with pride. The videos that they captured were intended for viewers throughout Gaza and well beyond to cities and villages across the Middle East and portions of the Muslim world. That's what uh, Michael Oren uh, strongly suggests. You know, they were not designed, you know, to delegitimize Israel internationally or weaken it inter internally. Just the opposite has happened. They wanted to fortify support for, for Hamas and the jihadist idea. The, the foreign correspondents who saw clips from the terrorists' body cams were permanently scarred. Hamas's audience were delighted. And if you look at it that way, you start to realize that uh, that they are closer to Amalek than we think. You know, and this is a, this is a question of, of, of how we actually uh, try and deal with the situation. It's, 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 it's very hard. And so therefore, we talk to realize that these moral conundrums often uh, are difficult to sort out um, on the battlefield, but we need we need Hashem's help, you know. As part of the the tefillah Shlomam Dinah and Futzal, we daven that Hashem should uh, should give us Eitzat Tova. The leaders should get proper ethical, uh, you know, hints from above, you know, to do the to do the thing that uh, that 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 defends us properly, that eradicates evil, and at the same time doesn't ignore innocence if they are truly, truly there. And so this is the conundrum that we are faced with, and hopefully we will uh, be blessed with an opportunity to, to, do, the, to do the thing that uh, doesn't turn us into the monsters we're trying to destroy. Okay, so that is more or less with a couple of additions what, uh, what I spoke out over Shabbos. You're welcome to, to uh, give feedback and comments. And... Um, and we go on davening for the for the protection from above uh, for uh, for all those who are who are in need of it. Okay, I wish you well and uh, have a shavuot tov. Thank you, shavuot tov. Thank you, thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Bye, thank everybody. You. Uh, wow, thanks, Rabbi. That was brilliant. Brilliant. Okay, if you it's not me, it's really like. Uh, you know, I, I can I can try and send you these uh, these articles if you want them. I can just post them on the group, and um, that would be great. Yes, please. Okay. Who's nodding behind me? Uh, okay, okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, Thank well, you. Know, you know, we dive in for the the safe return of everybody. You know, including uh, your cousin. Thanks, yeah. Rabbi. Thank Daniel you. Shimon yeah. Ben Sharon, is that right, Daniel? Yeah. Shimon? Yeah. yeah. Daniel. Thank you. Thanks, Rabbi. And also, sorry to use this platform, but you said you might remember to send us what's happening at Mizrahi tonight. Ah, yes, I will do that, Blinada, right now. Thank you. You can you uh, put it onto the um, JLC also. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that, Thanks, Rabbi. Thanks, Rabbi. Okay. Thank you. Like we can only hear good news from each other. Yeah. I'm mad. I'm mad. Thank Everybody. Thanks, right. Rabbi. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you so Bye. much. Thank you. Cheers.